Radio Mano Papachango. It's Chris. I'm back from Mexico. I've been a little under the weather, which is why this uh, is coming out a couple of days late. Sorry about that. Hope it didn't mess up your week. Um, well, I'm probably overestimating my importance in your life by even assuming such a thing is possible. But in any case, I, I try to get these things out uh, pretty regularly every week. I, I get one out every week, come rain or come shine, but uh, normally Monday morning. So today, let's see, it's Tuesday afternoon. This probably won't be out till late Tuesday afternoon. So I'm running a little behind schedule, but I got excuses. I've always got excuses. In fact, I thought one time years ago, I a friend and I, we're talking about writing a book of excuses. It'd be a great, it'd be a very useful thing, you know? It'd be right up there with the thesaurus. Nothing's wrong with your radio. That just happened in my mouth. I don't know why. It started as a joke and got carried away. I couldn't stop. Thesaurus. Yeah, it would be right up there with the thesaurus as a useful reference book, you know? You're late for something, just look up an excuse. Make a note on the page when you've already used one. That way you won't repeat them. You know, you can't say your grandmother died more than once. Maybe twice, if you can say, you know, maternal, paternal, but then you're out of grandmothers. So, um, yeah, interesting idea to have a book of ready-made excuses for any occasion. Anyway, what are my excuses? Uh, I was in Mexico. I came back and felt kind of Mexican um, in the sense that I didn't feel very well. Nothing against my Mexican friends out there. I know you feel fine. But um, yeah, I got a little a little Montezuma's Revenge, I guess. And um, had some great food, though. Wow. I found a place... So I was in a place called Yelapa, which, um, you know, it's one of these kind of semi-secret spots, but I guess I'm going to tell the secret because I consider you all my friends. So if you are in Mexico and you're in a place called Puerto Vallarta, which is very famous, big international airport, a lot of the sort of backpacker traveler crowd goes to uh, Sayulita, which is a town a little north, about an hour north of Puerto Vallarta. I went up there for lunch and uh, it's kind of, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for like bars and crazy nightlife, I don't know. If you're looking to get laid by a stranger, then I guess Sayulita is the place to go. But if you're looking to have a more interesting experience of Mexico, I highly recommend Yelapa, which is from Puerto Vallarta, you catch a water taxi. It's about a 45-minute ride on the boat. And you come to this little beach village, no cars. There are no roads that lead there. You have to go there by boat. And uh, whatever food isn't grown in the valley there uh, is brought in by boat. 
and uh, it's quiet and it's cool and it's beautiful and uh, there's a little village where you can go and there are a couple really good restaurants. Uh, Los Abuelos is some of the best Mexican food I've ever had. There's an old woman in the corner um, making blue corn tortillas and uh, it's like semi-fancy food but really really good and very reasonably priced of course um and then we ate at another place called the the bahia cafe i think which is near the the um, the pier if you go there and that was like a vegan uh place really good uh chai oh some of the best chai i've i've had outside of india actually uh really healthy healthy good food anyway yalapa and you hike back along the river and there are these waterfalls and there are dudes you know walking along with their donkeys carrying whatever into the town and um it's like a real mexican village and it's very close to puerto vallarta so like from la it's like three hours from you know, LAX to this little isolated village that feels like it's in another century. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and then it's just been a fucking uh, monsoon here in LA the last week or so. Uh, landslides, it's, you know, we need the rain, but holy shit, it's like everything's falling apart. In fact, where I live, in Topanga Canyon, the road is cut. The main road that goes down to the coast, the Pacific Coast Highway, is cut because a bunch of um, boulders and shit slid into the road, and now they have to do all sorts of geological assessments and figure out if the whole damn mountain's going to fall down. So I don't know how long uh, that's happening, but to get to get anywhere, you have to sort of go up all these back roads over mountains, down canyons. I think Malibu Canyon's closed as well, so... It's the end of the world down here, which uh, I guess is sort of fitting, given the fact that we have a new president who, in the first two days in office, has said about, um, you know, basically saying fuck you to every progressive accomplishment that's been made in the last eight years. So here we are. Anyway, today's guest uh, is great. She's uplifting. So don't let my... Don't let me be a downer for you. Kelly Hennigan McNiven is a cognitive scientist at Stanford and a really cool person, really um, insightful and and just I really enjoyed hanging out with her. I met her because her husband, Tyler, uh, was on the podcast. Uh, he's the dude who walked the length of Japan and then, you know, won the greatest race i think the tv show won a million dollars or something and he's uh he's this sort of he's like a human airedale or something he's he's just like this incredibly energetic clever smart guy who's just as far as i can tell never stops moving and thinking and you know and um so i you know hanging out with the two of them I got to know him pretty quickly and uh, she just sort of was hanging in the background a little bit and but I could see that she was uh, obviously she wouldn't be with him if she weren't very smart and interesting and eventually I uh, got to know a little bit about her and holy cow she's really something so I, I asked if she'd be on the podcast and she hesitantly agreed 
Um, you know, a lot of people who are like, well, I'm not that interesting. You know, I wasn't on a TV show. I didn't walk the length of a country. But who cares? I mean, you know, she's really interesting. What she's doing is using a um, uh, functional MRI. So these are the the machines that measure blood flow changes to various parts of the brain in response to different kinds of stimuli. So there, you know, there are all these research, um, not, not her research, but some people are doing research showing, you know, when you look at a picture of your loved one, the, you know, different parts of your brain light up and, you know, that's the kind of research that we're talking about, but her research is specifically around addiction and trying to see if, um, looking at, uh, patterns of blood flow in people's brains. If you can predict who's going to respond to different um, treatment protocols better, who's more likely to relapse and so on. Anyway, she explains all that in greater detail. Uh, but uh, we end up talking about hallucinogens and, you know, the difference between the brain and the mind and, uh, you know, whether free will exists and how, you know, we sort of anthropomorphize the universe in terms of religion and spirit and, um, yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff. So we have a pretty wide ranging conversation, which is between me and someone who actually knows what they're talking about, which is always a nice thing. So I hope you enjoy this. I won't uh, rant on anymore. I don't have any specific things to throw at you. Maybe I'll do a Roma later in the week if I feel up to it. Um, but my buddy Justin is coming down. Justin the Fireman, who was episode 99. He's coming down tomorrow and we'll probably do some road tripping. I think we'll go. I've always wanted to go to uh, what's it called? The Salton Sea, which is uh, back near Joshua Tree. So we'll see if Justin's up for it. Maybe we'll go down there and maybe we'll record a, a podcast in the car. We'll do a, another road trip episode if he's up for it. We'll see. I don't know. He's he's just had some family trauma. Um, I think his sister died a couple of days ago, so maybe he won't be up for it. Um, but if he is, uh, maybe we'll, we'll throw one of those together for you. Anyway, uh, thank you all of you for listening to this podcast and for telling your friends. And as I, I mentioned, uh, an episode or two back for some reason, the downloads are going through the roof and, uh, we're gonna have to build a new roof, I guess. I don't know why that's happening, really. Um, I haven't done a lot of media. I haven't been on Rogan's show for a while, which, you know, is, results in a bump. Um, so I guess it's just that people are telling their friends about the podcast and um, the word is spreading. So I really appreciate those of you who are contributing to that. It's always nice to have new people in the tribe. And uh, yeah rock on. So I'm going to play you out with a song by Steve Forbert called Mexico. Sometimes I'm so weary Sometimes I'm so low If not for your sweet love I think I would move to Mexico TV shows a city Everything is down Find your friends and families Need this earthquake shaking town Mexico Mexico 
times I'm so weary. How can I complain? All ain't got's a cardboard box to sleep in when it rains. Who will tell his mother? Who will take the news? Who will bring his messes? Is gone black and all her blues. Mexico. Mexico Down the highway Down the line Cross the border Back in time to Mexico Kelly Hennigan McNiven. Kelly Hennigan McNiven. All right, I'm here with Kelly Hennigan McNiven. <laughs> Which is like, is that all like Irish, Scottish? Irish, Scottish, a bunch of like, yeah. It's like gibberish all, syllables that are. Yeah. Yeah. But they're all like from the same little quadrant of the world. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Hennigan, I think, is more Irish and McNiven is more Scottish. Yeah. But three syllabic. Lots of ends. Yeah. yeah. There are lots of kilts in your background. Yeah. Lots yeah. of kilts. Well, I'm Christopher Patrick Ryan, so... Oh, yeah, thank you. I, okay. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Although I've never worn a kilt. You should what? before... I mean, that should be on a bucket list, right? To wear a kilt? Yeah. It just seems like a fun <laughs> thing to do. I've never worn a kilt either, but... <laughs> I, there are kilts now that are sort of like... Uh, Fashionable, like in Portland, dudes will wear. They call them utility kilts. <laughs> that that like makes it macho. It's a utility kilt, man. Yeah, it's not a skirt. Yeah, it's I've like, seen people wear those at Burning Man, uh -huh, and like yeah. occasionally for for weddings. Weddings. If I saw a guy yeah. walking down the street wearing a kilt, I would definitely be intrigued. Would you? Yeah. Intrigued. That's yeah. a good word. Not yeah. not repulsed. Not. Uh, I mean, would you would you be like, yeah, what a cool dude. Look at him. He's wearing a kilt. He doesn't give a damn. Yeah, I think it would depend on how he wore it, you know? 
like anything, like any fashion yeah. statement. It all comes like, down to how you wear do your you, kilt. Do you own it? Do yeah. you own it? Or right. are you, yeah. Yeah, if you're looking sort of apologetic in a kilt, that's not a good look. Not a good look. Yeah, you got to really like, I don't give a damn. Yeah. 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 Well, I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's sort of everything. Everything you has should, to be. Yeah, but give it a try one day. Just walk down Topanga Canyon. In a kilt. Oh, wow, that'd be good. Like, go on your normal walk, mm -hmm. hike through the hills. Yeah. And when those LA folks don't meet your eye, <laughs> see if they get don't meet your eye with a kilt on. <laughs> I know what you're laughing at. You're laughing at me, aren't you? I know you are. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'll take some acid and go wandering through the mountains in a kilt. Hmm. Um, okay, so Kelly, um, what is it? Kelly Hennis? You can, you can call me Kelly Hennigan. Kel Kelly Hennigan. Yeah. Uh, you are a postdoc at Stanford. And that's right. You're, did you do your doctorate at Stanford as well? Yes. In neuroscience? Or? Uh, in neuropsychology. Neuropsychology. That's right. So what is neuropsychology, Kelly? So, neuropsychology... Doctor. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because people have... Let's call each other doctor for the rest of this guy. <laughs> Done. I would love <laughs> it if people... Yeah. It would be like an old episode of Frasier. Uh, well, doctor, how are you, doctor? Remember that in Cheers when he... Did you ever watch Cheers? Uh, I did a little bit. There was a doctor-doctor scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very pretentious doctor-doctor. Anyway, I interrupted you, doctor. I'm sorry. No problem, doctor. So, um, people have different labels for things. I would say that I self-identify with the field of cognitive neuroscience, mm -hmm. um, which is the study of the mind and brain and the ideas that we can gain insight about how the mind works by studying the brain and studying the mechanisms of the brain. So let's define terms. Okay. What's the difference between the mind and the brain in your usage? Oh, wow. Okay, so the mind in my mind is in my mind. Dun, 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 bum. Yeah, there yeah. you go. We need a symbol. I need to bring a little symbol. Oh, just, that'd be good. Every time someone makes a joke. Da, 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 da. Okay. Um, the mind, I would say, is the stuff that we care about. So hmm. um, behavior we can see, brains we can also look at, and we can look at anatomy and say this is this and this is this. Psychology we all have a sensation of, we all have a, an experience, and I feel like that is a realm of psychology. And cognitive science I feel like is the, um, is defining sort of the, it's coming up with models of the way thinking works and ideas about how thinking operates and you can't see it and uh, you can only understand that it's there and, and try to, to come up with um, thoughtful theories about how our machinery, which is the brain, works and how that leads to the phenomenological feeling of psychology and then also the behavior under it. So the mind is the oh, brain yeah. plus emotion and hormones, or what is yeah, the mind? Yeah, I didn't that? do a good job of that. Okay, so the mind is, um, I would say, uh, the emergent phenomenological sensation of what it's like to have a brain. The mind. So the mind is the experience of being a thinking being. The mind is an experience of being a thinking being. Yeah. So. It's not restricted to humans. Other animals have minds. Dolphins oh, have absolutely. minds. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Elephants and... Absolutely. Yeah. okay. I mean, yeah. We talk about... I mean, we even talk about our computers as having minds as if they have minds. Right. 
we talk we get angry if our computer gets a bug and it's taking a long time to load but do you think that's because the computer has a mind or it's just that we are accustomed to attributing mindfulness to other things i think the latter yeah. i think that we're accustomed yeah. to attributing so, do you think that that same customary uh, attribution of intentionality and, and mindfulness underlies religious impulse that we sort of assume because we interact with the universe on some level that the universe must be conscious in some way huh interesting um and feel free to say I have no fucking idea. No, I, I think mean, that that's a really big, big no. Questions. These are these are big questions, and I'm actually just thinking about that because I imagine that the first people to attribute religion or to think about religion and to attribute you know the the properties and principles of our world to some creator, I think that that came out not necessarily as an anthropomorphification of humans, but was more about this is what we do as humans, we storytell, and we need a story. But it's not about like, actually, yeah, I guess God, in religion, at least like West, Western religion, God is a, you know, is a person. And there's a, I mean, he's a being, he's a he, first of all. Well, in some, but like in, in Judaism, it's, as I understand Judaism, you can't depict God. That's considered illegitimate to depict God at all, whether right, as a man right. or a woman or a human or anything. Yeah. So at least they, and I think Buddhism also resists this idea that, you know, Buddha was God, you know, there's right. no, they're, not, they're yeah. not buying into that. Yeah, that's a good point. Although that's not a Western religion, but. But so, yeah, yeah. so maybe it's more about, maybe religion's more about um, a desire to, I think it is a, it's a very humanistic need to, try to explain things and to want to have a cause for something. And I feel like religion is probably a, um, a desire to be able to have a, like a causal story behind something. And a relationship. And a relationship and a, and a sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, or a sense of like, you know, you, can, you could say the reason we're here is because, you know, God or, or Buddha or, you know, whatever, whatever being. The Sun King. The Sun yeah. King, Allah. Um, oh, you God, know, don't mention Allah. Oh shit! Now, ah, now I'm gonna get it. terrorist attacks. Yeah. Edit that out. Yeah, edit that out. <laughs> um, I'm I'm way beyond what I know right now, but I but I'm enjoying thinking about these things with you. Yeah, well, we're all beyond what we know. Anytime we talk about any of this stuff, I mean, that's so. You and I talked last night briefly, uh, and I mentioned a friend of mine whose whose work is in some ways similar to yours, and how he was doing a degree in philosophy at the same time he was doing his medical degree. Mm -hmm. And you talked about how interesting that is because so much of the science that you're working in impacts philosophy. I mean, it is philosophical. It, it's very interesting because, uh, of course, science used to all be philosophy. It was all the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like what you're doing. Well, we should probably talk about what you're doing. You're, you're doing brain scans uh, that are specifically looking at what neural structures associated with addictive behavior. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really I'm interested in addiction. Uh, so I did my doctorate in trying to understand the dopamine system in people. And I was using fMRI, which is not a direct 
method of measuring dopamine, but it's an indirect method. So dopamine is um, a neurotransmitter. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It's dopamine, serotonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Yeah. And then, so those are neuromodulators. And then there are other, I would say GABA and glutamate are the most sort of basic, widely used around the brain neurotransmitters. But people don't necessarily study those because that's sort of, that's not so much involved with uh, mood or emotion as they are involved with just basic, you know, it's like in order for a neuron to fire, you need sodium right. and you need potassium. Right. So people that are interested in the mechanics of neural signaling would study those. Right. In the way that people study glutamate and, right. and GABA. Right. But um, dopamine, I think, is particularly interesting because something goes wrong with dopamine. Um, okay, the things that are involved with dopamine malfunctioning, Parkinson's, um, potentially Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, depression, you, uh, addiction is all involved. I mean, anything that you become addicted to involves sort of a hijacking of the dopamine system. Um, working memory, attention and cognition also involve dopamine. Um, dopamine levels are really important for those things. So there's just a lot of stuff that dopamine is um, really crucial for. And other neuromodulators are also important. But so I studied that in graduate school, and um, then based on this more basic research, I got really interested in addiction. And I'm now looking at whether or not we can look at brain activity while people are in rehab to predict who will uh, be able to successfully recover from addiction and who ends up relapsing. Right. Now, are you looking at that in isolation from family dynamic and whether how much money is available to them and social support networks and all those other things that are involved in uh, relapse i wouldn't say i wouldn't say in isolation but we know that those things we so a lot of studies have been done on those things and those things are very important in terms of um determining who's at high risk for relapsing um but those are pretty well characterized we know that actually uh, being married is um, a very important predictor of having uh, like a successful outcome, not relapsing. Um, using more than one drug, like having more Does than one work? substance Sorry. abuse problem is also bad. Is yeah. bad. Yeah. And the marriage thing. Yeah. Is that... Uh, as a factor in not relapsing, is, does it affect men and women the same? No. So it's more of a factor for men than it is for women. Uh, you know, I know that there actually is a gender difference, but I'm, but I don't know which way it goes. I suspect it is, because women tend to keep men out of trouble. Men tend to get women into trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that there's the same sort of gender uh, differentiation with uh what is the other study i was reading the, the same sort of thing like yeah you're more likely i think you're more likely to die men are more or more likely unmarried men are more likely to die from any cause than married men except frustration just kidding and <laughs> <laughs> and uh but married women have a either they have a higher mortality or the the difference is much less significant but anyway, we could. But I, I remember thinking about that because it's also like the men who are less, who are more likely to die, are also less likely to be married. You know, like in other words, women women are less likely to marry a guy who's more likely to be dying soon because he's sick, because he's you know living in the streets, 
Hmm. You know, because he's in some sort of mortal danger. Okay. Uh, so he's less. So the statistics may be, you know, uh, right. not, it's not, not it's indicate not what they like appear a to indicate. Random sampling of men, yeah. and then some are married, some aren't. It's not like marriage will make you healthier. Right. It's right, like right. if you're healthier, you're more likely to find a woman who's willing to marry you. Right. Yeah. So that makes sense. Anyway, so we're, we veered off into something there. Yeah. Um, but getting back to your research, so so just just so people understand uh, what neurotransmitters actually do. Yeah. The, the way. My understanding is that neurons are not wires. They're they're like tiny snips of wires with little gaps between them. A neurotransmitter is a molecule, and I could actually talk about what dopamine does because I think it's super interesting, which is why I started studying it. Mm -hmm. It's in the synapse. Is that where it functions? Yes. Okay, so, so that's the gap between two neurons. Yes. So there's a presynaptic neuron and a postsynaptic neuron. There's a little, basically, electrical connection in between, um, or little gap in between, that allows chemicals and electricity to transmit in between. Uh -huh. And um, when the presynaptic neuron fires an action potential, which is just like a little um, electric electric current signal, it will release certain neurotransmitters. Um, and sometimes, if that neuron actually is producing dopamine, it can release dopamine. So the reason that dopamine is really interesting is because a lot of people at first thought that dopamine was important. Usually, I mean, people that kind of conventionally know of dopamine associate it with like love and excitement and adventure. Hmm. And dopamine is important for sort of positive arousal things. But um, this research back in the 1990s showed, which is uh, this really powerful, interesting finding that led to a whole other field um, showed that it is also basically signaling, it's not signaling um, something positive per se, it's signaling the difference between what you expected and what actually happened in terms of how positive that was, which oh. is called reward prediction error. Are you familiar with yeah. that term? So yeah, so you, it's not that your happiness depends on whether you win, it's whether you expected to win. You expected to lose, but you won. That gives you a big charge. Big charge. But if you expect, it's lowering expectations leads to greater satisfaction, that, you know, the old saw. So you're saying that there's actually a neurochemical correlate to that. Yes. Differentiation between what you expect to happen and what actually happens. Yes. And is it only in the positive sense or in the negative sense as well? It's uh, the negative sense is more controversial, um, mm. like in the punishment, like aversive bad domain. Right. Like but, you, you thought she'd be pissed, but not that pissed. Right. That right. is that is controversial. Right. Um, some people think so. Some people think that it doesn't do that at all. Mm. The thing is, in ner these neurons, these dopamine neurons, have baseline firing rates. And they'll fire a lot for positive things, but they might actually just kind of be at their baseline is so, their baseline firing rate is so low that they don't really have the ability to kind of fire less right. than their baseline. Right. So it's controversial whether or not they're doing that or not. Right. But so I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say think about the implications of this because it's actually not it's not just like a it has it has real implications for learning. So imagine that we're just we're these organisms that are needing to understand our environment at all times. We are constantly trying to predict what's going to happen next, where good things are going to come from, like where we can get rewards. Like think of when you were little, like seeing that, I don't know, I always think of this sock, this one soccer mom used to like always, whenever she picked us up, take us to get ice cream. And I would just get like super excited. 
But then getting ice cream isn't, isn't as exciting as when you first see the mom that's going to give you the ice cream. Mm. It, there's the, because mm. that's when the... Because that's the variable. Once you've seen her, you know you're going to get the ice cream. Right. That's right. when that's when the, that's when all of a sudden my expectations uh, had a difference between what actually is happening. That's when I got excited and surprised at seeing that I was going to get ice cream. It's funny. I get excited by soccer moms too. That's... So we have Snap. In yeah, there you go. <laughs> so here's the here, so but let's take uh, this one step further. Yeah. So that's interesting that dopamine neurons fire that way. Uh -huh. But the thing that is um, sort of like biologically meaningful is that uh, dopamine also is really important for long-term potentiation and long-term depression. So basically dopamine gates synaptic plasticity. Synaptic plasticity is what allows you to learn. And it's not the only thing that gates synaptic plasticity by any means. By gates, you mean delimits? I mean, like, um, allows to happen. Oh, okay. Like, it, it's firing it or not, it. potentiates right. it. Okay. It, fi it fires or doesn't fire, and that basically changes the strength of a synaptic connection. And the strength of the synaptic connection is what is literally like the underlying, you know, neural level uh, substrate of learning. So it allows right. you to so it allows you to to change your prediction, right? So that you something good happens, and then you start to you start to learn that 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 good thing is going to happen. Something predicts a good outcome. It allows you to basically learn the association between some predictive cue and then the good outcome, and then backtrack it from there. Like all of a sudden, I had to learn first of all that the soccer mom that I saw that you see, you had to learn that the soccer mom that you saw. Was going to give me ice cream. Was going to get you ice cream. <laughs> or I'm something like that. Putting up quote, yeah. <laughs> Air quotes. Right? It's but, funny, um, that's the difference between our ages. When you, I've never known a soccer mom as a mom. To okay. me, soccer moms were always like, my age or younger, right? So but it's, it's fine. It means a totally different thing to me. But actually, <laughs> the thing that it means for you is as important, if not more important. It's more important. Well, I mean, in, in an evolutionary sense, it is, yeah. you know, certainly yeah. we. OK, but the kind of learning, there's so much in this that, man, I've been wanting to talk to someone like you my whole life that, because like there's so many things that I feel like we all assume we understand, but we don't when yeah. it comes to learning and how the brain works and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about there, that kind of learning, associating you know, predictions with outcomes and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Reinforcement Is, learning. Isn't that just one type of learning or one type of... Yes. Because like learning, I don't know, learning... Uh, of course. You know, just learning things that are interesting. Like what I'm learning right now, there's no... Right. Uh, it's not going to get me fruit or ice cream or, right. you know... It's, it's right. It's, it's fitness. It's, yeah. There's no fitness associated with it. Yeah. Like, I mean, of course, there's tons of different types of learning... And there's tons of different types of memory. Right. Um, so this is, yeah, I'm talking about reinforcement learning, the, the type of learning that is really easy or easier than all these other more rich, interesting types of learning. It's uh, more easily operationalizable. And you can study and it in that's, the And that's why, yeah, that's why I'm talking about it probably right. is because like right. this is what is easy to sort of, what people have figured out how to control in a lab setting right. and look in rats and then look in humans. And Do you ever think about how much of science is that? Oh, it is, gosh. You know, yeah. I mean, I have this idea of writing a book about things we know we don't know, but pretend we do. 
Yeah. And, and one of them is how science, you know, that there's that joke about, um, you know, the guy sees someone, he parks his car and he sees someone looking around in the bushes under the street light. And he says, oh, what are you doing? He says, I lost my keys. And he's like, well, where's your car? He's like, oh, my car's over there. Well, why are you looking there? Here then. Well, because the light's here, you know? <laughs> It's a very apropos. I mean, science yeah. is like that. It's like, well, we so can true. we can replicate this in rats. Therefore, this is what we're going to study. Yeah. And then we forget that, like, yeah, but wait a minute. This was supposed to be something about human cognition, and this is one tiny little thing that may or may not even be relevant. Right. But we're studying it because we can. Right. It's so true. And then we sort of extrapolate from that, and and our model. You know, with the brain particularly, the, the model of the brain sort of correlates to whatever cutting edge technology happens to be at the moment. So true. So these days it's all artificial intelligence or compute, computational metaphors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there was a time where people, you know, t- thought about cognition in terms of the steam engine, mm-hmm. you know, or pulleys and levers and shit, you know, it just oh. depends where the culture is at that moment. Yeah. And then we get, we get wrapped up in our metaphors and forget that we're talking in metaphors. Yeah. Wow. You know? Totally. That's really interesting. Cause so the dopamine story is very, um, ingrained in the AI store. It, it, mm. these algorithms of reinforcement learning of reward prediction error, uh, the algorithms that produce reinf- uh, reward prediction error, which is the signal that is correlated with dopamine release, right. are just straight out of AI. Right. And um, yeah, I could I could tell. Yeah, there are many examples of that. Um, so I do functional magnetic resonance imaging, and uh, the way we get signal that we um, it's blood flow. It's a change in blood flow, and then that is correlated with neural activity, but right. we're looking at blood flow. Right. And the places where there are really big arteries, such as the primary visual cortex mm-hmm. and this place called the insula, these are the places that we actually end up uh, attributing a lot of significance to <laughs> and like claiming that like they're doing all these things. Right. I mean, they are doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. But we, just to your point, we spotlight these things. Because they are spotlighted by our technology, Right. That's the stuff that the most people look at, and we tell all these stories about them. Right. But uh, it's just because that's the technology. That's what technology is allowing us to look at right now. Right. Yeah. Um, if we develop some totally different type of technology, we'd be looking elsewhere, and yeah. and possibly change our sense of what's going on in the brain. Because I mean, so many things. You know, like the tonsils. Oh, we're going to remove the tonsils because they don't do anything. Yeah. It's not that they don't do anything. It's just that you guys couldn't figure out, not you personally, but doctors couldn't figure out what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. And so then we assume they do nothing, you know? it's What are tonsils doing? They're involved with the immune system on some level. I don't oh, remember like, exactly what it is. Yeah, but they're not, you know, these sort of like, and the appendix as well is involved in, in immune response. Wow. Yeah. So. So it's, it's funny. It's just like, oh, you know, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, the, the, the clitoris wasn't discovered until the 16th century. You know, it's like, oh, well, there's, it's not there. Women That's don't feel a, pleasure. <laughs> you know, oh it's ridiculous. Gosh. I think that yeah. there's also an element there of um, uh, the state of science also like sort of perpetuating itself. So a newcomer coming in and being like, wait a second wait, I have a, I have a clit. Like that is a thing that exists, Yeah. but everyone says that it doesn't. So I, I actually don't know if it does. Maybe it's just me. Yeah. yeah. It actually, um, 
changes like it actually I think physically I mean you it per, it uh perceptually changes what you're seeing and what you're thinking about. What's well, like those studies of, and I talk about this all the time, of how if your language has a word for a certain shade of color, mm -hmm. you pick it out of a spectrum much more quickly than if your language doesn't have, you know, it's like Absolutely. you see it as a color. Yeah. But that's only because your language has a word for it. Yeah. Whereas if it's like, oh, it's that shade between like burnt orange and, you know, dark yellow. Like right. you don't see it because you're describing something. There's a really I love like how linguistics and cognitive science interplay. Have you ever mm. heard of um, uh, what's his name? He teaches at MIT. He, he wrote a book called uh, don't sleep there, snakes. Daniel Everett. He's a. Oh yeah. You know him, his work, and he works with the Pinaha, who have this language that seems to undermine, you know, the Chomskyan notion that the that language comes out of these universal brain structures, and so all languages will have certain grammatical universalities. Hmm. And here's this language that has like no numbers. It's one, two, three, many and no direction it's toward the river away from the river toward the mountain away from the mountain no mm. north south no absolute directions oh. no colors there's no green no red no blue it's the color of the sky in the morning it's the color of this fruit in you know the early part of the summer it's the color of the river when it's been raining everything is associative wow yeah it's a really interesting uh and they've they've done all you know all sorts of scientists have gone down there and studied these people because they seem to think in ways that were predicted to be impossible, you know. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I'm really let's not get off on on that. I want to keep keep picking your brain a little bit here or your mind. Well, I was gonna I could tell you about Lara Borditsky's work, which maybe you're familiar with. No. Um, she has studied. Um, indigenous tribes that actually only have like they are all about having um uh ordinal direction hmm. and so they'll if they're telling a story about um their canoe flipping and they're facing you as i'm facing you they'll flip their hands left to right to talk about their canoe flipping but if they're faced 90 degrees the other direction They'll talk about their canoe flipping, and then their hands are going forward and back. But the canoe is still oriented the same way toward me. The canoe, yeah. So the canoe's like, the canoe is whatever they're always referencing. Their gestures and their references are actually referencing like real space, like uh, real, right. real direction. And um, they have they don't have uh, like left and right. Yeah, the pinaha don't either. Yeah, that's yeah. another thing. They the just, left and right. They'll make real reference gestures to space, and they'll like say, "Oh, yeah, there's an ant on your north by northwest shoulder." <laughs> like depending on where you know, or right, right. where you are oriented in space. That's so cool. Yeah. And do they have really cool. what's their time? Do, do you know anything about time? I don't know about their time because the pinaha are hilarious with this. They, they, there's no abstract future or abstract abstract past. Wow. So when the first missionaries came, Daniel Everett was a missionary initially. Huh. Um, he went in there to try to, you know, convert them to whatever religion he was. And they ended up converting him and he lived there for 25 <laughs> years and wow. like lost his wife and kids. Like he just was like, fucking, I'm staying. Wow. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. But anyway, um, 
he uh, he talks about how when he was you know talking to them about Jesus, yeah, their thing was like, Daniel, um, did you know Jesus? And he's like, no, no, Jesus lived a long time ago. I'm like, ah, did your father know Jesus? No. Did your grandfather know Jesus? No, no, no. Then Daniel, we don't want to hear anything else about Jesus. <laughs> it's like that's it. You don't because that's as far back as they. That's as far back go. as they go. If you don't know someone who knew, then it, then, then then why are you talking about it? What? Yeah. So Whoa. there's no abstract. They're past. not. You're not allowed to just talk about like some myth. No, they don't give a shit. Wow. They want to know immediate experience so they're like the ultimate be here now kind of people yeah wow and you know getting into these questions of um you know expectations and all that kind of stuff there's this beautiful passage where he says he's never he's never seen people who were happier and in fact some some psychologists have come in to study them in terms of happiness and what they did was they set up video cameras in the village that just randomly recorded people and then they went back and they had graduate students score what percentage of the time they were smiling or laughing hmm. and it's like four or five times higher than you know western uh, people um but are you smile if it's a lot of smiling and laughing does that mean that you're happier well good question good question i think generally in humans it does doesn't it I mean, I know there's there's fear, there's discomfort, so and we were talking about comedians who make people laugh by making yeah. them uncomfortable. And I was thinking of cultures that just have, there can be cultural differences in terms of like people, cultural differences in just being polite and being outwardly mm-hmm. social and like yeah. friendly yeah. versus those that aren't, you know, they just don't feel like they, someone that doesn't feel like they need to smile unless, yeah. unless they really feel like they need to smile. Yeah. And actually, those people, when you get a smile out of those people that don't normally smile, isn't that amazing? It's like they're like really feeling it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I remember when I moved to Spain, uh, my girlfriend at the time, like she eventually sort of took me aside after a few lunches with her family. Yeah. And she said, um, listen, Chris you have to stop saying please and thank you all the time. You're making people uncomfortable. Whoa, <laughs> like, really? Like, she's really like, you know, I know calm down. you mean it, like, but you don't need to say please, you know, please pass me that. Oh, thank you. Please, please, please thank They're like, we're your friends. You don't, yeah, you don't yeah. thank us for everything. Right. Why, why are you thanking me for the fucking salt, man? Yeah. You know, relax. Yeah. yeah. And I still see that in Spain. It's a big cultural difference. You know, like, I'll thank the waiter and he'll look at me like... I'm a fucking waiter. What are you, what are you talking about? Right, you know? yeah. It actually creates distance. It creates distance, yeah. yeah. That's a really good point. It's um, a, yeah. Anyway, listen, I, want, I don't want to lose this opportunity to keep picking your brain. I don't, okay, I mean, let's I'd, do it. I'd love to just wander off into the weeds, as I generally do, but okay. you're, you're, what you're an expert on is stuff that's really interesting to me. So neurotransmitters, as I understand it, they fill that gap, that synaptic gap. Now, can the same neuron... Can it pump out dopamine or serotonin or norepinephrine or whatever, or those different neurons? In general, no. In general, they are different neurons. But they're all in the brain. They're all in the brain. There's some little exceptions to that, but we could, for the, our purposes to, today, just say that they are different neurons. They're different neurons. Okay. Yeah. And, and these neurons are in the brain, and they come down into the nose, as I understand. There's like a bit yeah. of your brain that extends into your nose. Yeah, definitely. The nose is probably the most... Um, 
Yeah, your olfactory receptors are the most like direct connection to the brain. Right. Yeah. Which Except, explains... I mean, your your eyes are like little brains, but but I mean that's a whole other thing. And what about the gut? There's all this stuff now about cognition taking place in the gut. Are yeah, there neurotransmitters in the gut? Super interesting. Yes, there are. Right. The there's, same ones? There's uh, for the for the most part, yes. We're getting a little out of what I know, but um so definitely serotonin is in the gut and plays a really big role. And there's this really interesting research now that's trying to connect what happens with the vagus nerve. Mm. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas <laughs> uh, with the vagus nerve, and um, the vagus nerve is really important. It's a it's a That's cranial a nerve. Neuroscientist joke there. You guys say that a lot in the lunchroom. Yeah. Know it. <laughs> um, the vagus nerve is really important for uh, like mastication and um, taste. Mastication. Ugh. We're not talking about sex in this interview. Come all on. All right. All right. Uh, so for taste and smell and like jaw movement and is also connected to the gut. And mm. people are making connections now with understanding vagus nerve stimulation and vagus nerve actions um, being kind of like a conduit between the gut and the brain, that being like a really important conduit, mm. which is this cranial nerve, but uh, it has connections that go down to the gut via other directions, probably a spinal so cord. Wh why? why? Why would that? Why, why would we have neurotransmitters in our guts? Oh, man. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I don't know. Let's think about that. Um, I know you'd want, you'd want sensation. Like, I mean, if you eat some poison or, you know, whatever, you want your brain to be able to trigger vomiting if there's something. But Well, we talk about having gut feelings. Yeah. Um, there's probably like a little, you know, factory that's, taking place down there that's constantly working. I mean, your gut actually, a ton of stuff changes whether or not your parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous system is kind of in control. Mm. If you are, if parasympathetic nervous system is in control, you're digesting, your gut is like doing its normal, like, like housekeeping duty work. And uh, if the sympathetic nervous system is in action, your gut is probably you're like you're basically just trying to excrete stuff you're not digesting um you're not trying to absorb nutrients you're talking about a chronic stress situation yeah it's that would be if you're if you're chronically in that state which yeah. is why people get these digestive disorders when they're stressed out a lot yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, have you worked with Sapolsky at all at Stanford? I was just going to bring up Sapolsky. Um, uh, I am a, I'm a big fan of his, and I have a good friend that has worked closely with, closely with him, but I've not worked with him directly. He must be a big star at, at Stanford. Yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's an amazing storyteller. Yeah. He's actually, he was the first person that taught me that um, there's a certain level of, um, I feel like once you get really good and you're a white man you just like certain old white men just start looking like bums <laughs> if but they're like if basically if an old white man looks like a bum in an academic setting it's funny it could mean that he's like really like really good that's funny you know I because was, he just doesn't give a shit it's so funny you say that i was on rogan's podcast one time and i yeah. started i think i told sapolsky's story about the um, the baboons in kenya 
which I've told on this podcast, God knows how many times, uh, where they, they had, there was some tuberculosis in the meat and the dump and the top echelon of the hierarchy of this baboon troop mm -hmm. got the meat, of course, because it was the best food. Then they were all dead. And then this, the, the sort of social tenor of this baboon troop changed because all the most aggressive males were dead suddenly. Yeah. Do you know the story? It, I know the story. It's an incredible story. Uh, like, yeah. So anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm truncating it a lot, but so so all the, is it was as if a bomb had gone off in like D.C. and Wall Street, and like suddenly all the dominant alpha male assholes were eliminated, wow. and so the entire culture of this troop changed. Like suddenly, they weren't harassing the females, they weren't harassing each other, the males, the the young weren't being chased around and you know beat, bitten and beaten and stuff. And it became this like very peaceful baboon yeah. troop. Yeah. And so he thought, oh shit, man, next time, you know, when I come next summer, it's going to be a shitstorm here because baboons, when males, males and females reach sexual maturity, they, no, it's the males, they leave their natal group and they join a neighboring group, right? Mm. They sort of yeah. fight their way into another group. Yeah. So it's going to be like fucking Vikings landing on the beach and there's no one here to defend the women and children, you know? Yeah, yeah, all yeah. The nasty gonna, dudes are going. Yeah. But he came the next summer expecting the worst and in fact what he found was that there were new males in the group but they were chill. That the culture of peacefulness and tolerance dominated these males. So instead of them coming in and taking over and being pricks, they came in and it was like, oh, that's not how you behave here. Okay. And so they chilled out and everybody's out. So is this anomaly in baboon. I love it because it's, it's one of these examples of how we could actually learn, you know, how, how learning dominates instinct. Or oh, absolutely. Yeah. In some cases. No, I think uh, social conformity is a huge uh, force in our world and um, there's some great examples when that if that has the opportunity to change like if the status quo is somehow wiped out yeah and that can change then really good things can revolution happen. revolution but anyway so I told Rogan the story and yeah. he's got a guy there in the studio who like looks things up while we're talking and so yeah. he googled Sapolsky yeah and he pulled up an image and Rogan's like, oh, oh, there's Sapolsky. And he looks at him for a minute and he goes, there's a guy who gives zero fucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, I was at a uh, the SFN, like the big neuroscience conference in yeah. San Diego uh, last month. 40,000 people, it's like huge. And um, I was looking around and like, was thinking like, yeah, if you see like an old white bum that's probably a sign <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's i think it's more of a male thing though yeah i don't know some women actually women no women do it too do but they? not but not to the same extent yeah women will like not get all done up but it won't be like hey man i'm here yeah take it, it won't be it. Yeah, yeah it won't be to the same extent but it's like what we were but saying I earlier about to do that you gotta wear your kilt with with a nonchalance. Yeah, if yeah. I, I mean, I would love to get to the level where I could just be like. <laughs> I mean, that's what we all strive for. For when I mean, we all do you dream shave of your that. Legs and stuff. Um, you know, I do. I do shave my legs about once a month, but that's more for me than for. But isn't that what else. getting married's like? I mean, they say when you get married, you're like, okay, that's it. I can I can just chill out and eat ice cream now. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. 
Wow, you're, you're blowing my mind. My life is going to change. By the way, now. we should tell people that your husband Tyler has been on this podcast. Tyler has been on the podcast. Yes, Tyler. And Tyler actually does do not because he's married, but he just doesn't give a shit and does whatever. I don't think Tyler's capable of giving a shit. Yeah, I think that's what makes him so charming. I agree. He's too. He's thinking about too many other things to give a shit. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you love him. I I do love him, yeah. and I do think that that's part of his charm. He's um. <laughs> He's incredibly playful. Yeah. Tyler, for those of you who have listened to this podcast obsessively, <laughs> people who have nothing better to do, uh, Tyler is the guy who walked the entire length of Japan, among other things. He also, what else did he do? He won the amazing, won the amazing race, race, which paid for this house we're sitting in, as I remember, or at least part of it. He started a really successful restaurant in San Francisco, and he started West Sun of Basket, Pecos. which is a... West of Pecos. Uh, where I ate two nights ago. Best yep. burger I've had in many a moon. Yeah. Really, really great. Tex-Mex. Yeah. And a cool, cool joint, too. Nice yeah. vibe. It's on Valencia Street. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by West of Pecos. I know. On Valencia Street in the Mission District. Well, and Sun, Sunbasket. He and also Sunbasket. Co-founded. This podcast is brought to you by Sunbasket, which is, what is that? It's a... Uh, it's like they deliver food to your door that you meal then cook. Meal delivery kit, yeah. A kit, a meal delivery kit. Is that all where, where he was telling me last night, it's like taken off. It's, it's taken off. It's only been around for like a year, but it's where, it, how many so states is it in? A couple years. Um, I want to say 42 states. 42 states. So that's but everywhere but except Mississippi and yeah, Alabama. It's all over America. It's in the civilized parts of America. The civilized parts of America. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, you Idaho survivalists. We don't deliver to wherever the fuck you are. Coming to them soon. Hopefully. Coming to you soon. Yeah. 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 All right. What's it called again? Uh, Sunbasket. Sunbasket.com. Sunbasket.com. This is the only kind of advertising I do on the podcast. Shit that comes up spontaneously. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Now, let's get back to the brain, though. Now, all right. I I have taken a lot of hallucinogens. Okay. Do do you want to say something? Well, I was going to say we could finish the wrap of... The story oh, did we of leave dopamine. Something hanging? Oh well, yeah. Okay. The, so the dopamine. thing is, there's this, there's the dopamine story, and uh-huh. we were talking about the learning aspect. Right. And now that I'm interested in addiction, there's a really sort of provocative dopamine story that relates to addiction. Tell us, tell us a provocative dopamine story. Okay. So, um, so imagine that there is. So imagine that every single time, what we've talked about so far is that there's there's this. It's not just. Um, it's not just actually like predicting something good is going to happen. It's this prediction error. It's that you're trying, you're a prediction machine. Uh-huh. Imagine you're a prediction machine. You're trying to see what's good in the world. Right. And you see a soccer mom and you're like, oh, I thought she was going to be like, whatever. And is a soccer mom the same thing as a MILF? Because I, in my head, it kind of, it's Let's the use same that thing. interchangeably. In my mind, I was thinking of soccer mom as like, There's a is milf. she going to bring gonna me ice me cream? For ice cream. <laughs> yeah. I see a screenplay here. Yeah, it could work out. (laughs) So you see that soccer mom. Right. And that exceeds your expectations, and you get this burst of dopamine. Yeah. And that means the dopamine neurons, neurons that produce dopamine, are releasing dopamine, and that is actually creating plasticity in your brain. 
you're learning to better predict what is going to happen next. Because now my expectations of soccer moms have suddenly increased. So yeah. now that's my baseline soccer mom yeah. prediction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So that's an important part of this. Okay. Okay. So dopamine, anytime that there's, so once you've actually learned how good soccer moms are, when you see them, there's no dopamine release. Once your prediction meets the expect, once your prediction meets the actual event, mm -hmm. there's no dopamine release because it's all about the difference between those two. So it's tolerance, essentially. You, you develop tolerance. You develop tolerance through learning because right. it's, it's basically, you have nothing left to learn. You've adapted. Now that's normal. You have nothing left to learn. You, you, right. there was a difference between what you thought and right. then what happened. Right. And then once it gets to the point where what you think will happen happens, there's nothing left to learn, less right. left to learn. Right. Okay. So here's the thing about uh, like addiction. The fact that any drug that is a drug of abuse works by increasing dopamine. Imagine now that we're talking about, um, not a soccer mom, but about uh, just some experience and it should work the same way that some experience should constantly like until you you're predicting stuff and until your prediction actually meets the expectation dopamine will happen but once you actually have learned how good something is going to a concert seeing a soccer mom eating ice cream once you've figured out how good that is you no longer have the dopamine like jolt because right. the dopamine jolt is supposed to say this is better this is actually better right so taking cocaine, taking some drug of abuse is always jacking up your dopamine system. So that's literally telling your body constantly, this is better than what you thought. This is better than what you thought. This is better than what you thought. Mm. And that's part of the cycle. That's of, the hook. The hook is that it's hooking into your learning system, telling you that there's more to be learned, right. telling you that there's something better. This keep, is better. Keep this going is better. Back this is better. This, this is better. Well. Yeah. It's not just that this well is good, it's that this well every single time is better incrementally right. than what you thought before. And so you're going to go back because you haven't yet exhausted what there is to you get here. You haven't yet exhausted what right. there is to get. Okay, but then, so the, the, yeah, all right, so we'll get back to the whole psychedelics. Re, re, remind me, I don't, I don't want to forget that. Okay. Um, but. Now, addiction as a disease then, yeah. do you subscribe to that model of addiction? Do you see it as a disease? Um, I do, and I do because I think that it's useful for people to, I think labels are useful, though they can be detrimental too, but to be able to say like, this is a thing that I have um, is a useful thing. And also, you know, like diabetes or like anything else, addiction actually is taking over your biology and um, so, yeah, I think it's useful but to think of it as a disease. But don't most addicts just grow out of their addictions? Most alcoholics, most heroin addicts, most of them just outgrow it. Uh, I guess it depends on what you define as... No, I mean, no. People that are... When you get to the point that you're calling yourself addicted to something, you're it, more likely than not to not grow out of it right now based on like what we have available to us in America. Um, there are other countries. Portugal has like taken a totally different approach. Right. Everything's legalized. Well, or and decriminalized. Decriminalized yeah. and they're focusing solely on like treating people. Right. Which I think has been a very successful case study. Yeah. But I don't know that much about that. 
I but, know um, a fair bit about it. Oh, okay. And, well, I think that's cool. And it's been incredibly successful. The deaths from overdose are, you know, a fraction of what they were. Um, AIDS transmission is much, much lower. Um, you know, every, in fact, the use of, of heroin and um, cocaine and other heart, so-called hard drugs is down. Yeah. Yeah, it's been incredibly successful. Yeah, so that's cool. Yeah. In, in America now, your chances of at least what I'm thinking of, stimulants and opiates, actually, it's, it's, uh, it, it varies a little bit drug by drug, but essentially, if you think that you have a dependence and you have dependence is like a physical dependence, but you call it an addiction once it becomes actually detrimental to your life to have this dependence. Mm. Once it becomes detrimental to your life and you're calling it an, an addiction, um, the chances of you successfully being able to recover from that and like no longer having that as part of your life um, is less than 50%. I mean, and lifelong, it's probably even more dire. I mean, mm. it's, it's, no, you don't just bounce back from that. So no, most addicts don't recover. Well, I've had, um, do you know who Stanton Peel is? No. He's, he's an author. He's sort of the main um, proponent against the addiction model. Uh, I've had him on the podcast a couple times. I would times. love to hear about it. He's, he's very interesting. Um, Love and Addiction, I think, is his most famous book. Okay. Um, Anyway, he's, he's very interesting. I, I can't re recapitulate his arguments for you, but he's the person I've read who, who's argued that most addicts just outgrow uh, their addiction and that he feels that the disease model is disempowering because it tells mm. people that this isn't, these aren't choices you make. It's out yeah. of your hands. And the whole AA model of like, you know, you have to admit you're helpless. Yeah. And you have to, and this idea that if you ever have like one sip of alcohol again, you're going to fall into the trough of addiction and, you know, you, your whole life will be ruined. Yeah. You know, he argues that, in fact, most people, um, it's it's more associated with, and Gabor Mate also I've had on, do you know him, Gabor Mate? He wrote a book called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts. He's a doctor in Vancouver who's worked with a lot of heroin addicts. And um, he argues that addiction is most commonly um, a response to trauma. Uh, mm. People who've, who've experienced trauma, whether traumatic um, upraising, uh, uh, up what do you say? Being raised in a traumatic yeah, yeah. environment. They've been beat, they've been hurt, they've been sexually abused, whatever. Um, and the addiction is sort of a way of, uh, of numbing that pain. Mm. And so, you know, it's interesting because now in my world, there's a lot of talk about sexual addiction. You know, people who supposedly are addicted to, I mean, I guess there's dopamine released at orgasm, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, according to the model that you were just outlining, like someone who masturbates compulsively, it's not getting better every time, right? It's not like every orgasm isn't somehow incrementally better than the last. Yeah. So there yeah. must be some some release of of dopamine or or whatever it is adrenaline or whatever that that numbs you know i i for me i kind of and i'm no expert in any of this but i feel like a lot of addiction is about the ritual involved 
Yeah. It's not even about the drug. It's about the, you know, you get, you get your spoon and your lighter and your this, and, you know, your syringes and your all the, and like procuring it and like your community yeah. of other users are in your world and all the, it's all this, you know, how you prepare the drug and that we have an absence of meaningful ritual in our lives. And huh. I think there's sort of a sacrament that gets involved in a lot of drug use for people. I think ritual is is very um, underappreciated in our society right now, and I think that it's ripe to have like a revival in terms of mm. appreciating that, and also in terms of studying that fully. Yeah. And maybe I just don't know enough about anthropology research that is studying this, because I'm sure there's yeah. a lot. And I'll bet if you did brain scans of people doing ritual, meaningful yeah. ritual, I'll bet you'd find interesting correlations there but it's very hard to study this is some maybe this is maybe just because i'm so in the dopamine world i'm just uh enveloping everything as being dopamine related but i would argue that all that is drawing out the expectation of what's going to happen it's basically mm. like getting you excited and there's dopamine release in that uh -huh. about that, like, what that is going makes to a lot of sense. happen next. Right. It's and framing it in a way that potentiates the experience. Yeah. yeah. You were, yeah. It's foreplay. It's foreplay. It's foreplay. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, this is a little bit of a leap, but um, Daniel Kahneman has done work on, mm. this is a leap, but showing that like, if you have he people wrote, enjoy. He wrote fucking fast and slow, right? Uh, he, yeah, he has, he has, uh, he has a dual process model. Okay. <laughs> uh, he's thinking. got a dual, he's got a dual thinking. process model. It's called yeah. thinking okay. fast and slow. Um, uh, he has this whole thing about you enjoy vacation more if you have the time, if like, if, if vacation happens six months in advance, as opposed to like tomorrow, Right. people would prefer right. to take vacation six months in advance. Right. I maybe am not getting those dates because right. Because the anticipation the, is a part of the experience. It's a part of the experience, yeah, the buildup. Yeah, right. And I feel like a lot of that is very dopamine-related. Um, hmm, that's interesting. Because there's, there's this like element of prediction and of like simulating what's going to happen and thinking about that that's very present. So in that light, are we shooting ourselves in the foot with all this instantaneous satisfaction from technology because we're constantly trying to make things easier and quicker and more efficient i mean not to not to uh, piss on our sponsor but isn't there something about like going shopping and like buying the food and then coming home and chopping it up and preparing it there's something in that ritual that is like it's almost as good as when you sit down and eat it yeah well, if you're talking about Sunbasket as the sponsor. <laughs> or Western Bank. Sunbasket is all about... No, actually, yeah. I mean, Sunbasket, I think, is actually bringing that back by virtue of allowing you... It's taking out the shopping part, but right. it's allowing you to have that experience. You still have the, the ritualistic preparation phase. Yeah, yeah. which is actually, yeah. I think, what a lot of people are missing. Yeah, have I a glass of wine, light a candle, and put on some music, make, and make like, dinner. And you get a delicious yeah. meal for yeah. your spouse or yeah. for your partner for another... Someone else's spouse. Yeah, yeah, someone else's spouse. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Get two meals and then it's a whole foursome. Yeah, exactly. Wait, I want to I want to talk about because uh, you because I was like, yeah, addiction model, and then you were talking about this person that you had on your podcast that Stanton Peel does not subscribe to that at right, all. Right. Um. So let's talk about that a little bit because um, 
I don't see that as a, I'm not ingrained in it being a disease model, but I do think that it is actually useful for people. And I've also, I also like the idea of, you were mentioning that he was saying that it's not about the whole idea of being a um, recovering person. Like, sure, you can have a drink every now and then, or sure, you can have, I love that concept um, in theory. And I actually like really do, and I wish that that was the case, that that's how it was. But um, in my experience with the people that I've met, because I actually really would like that to be that way, because I, as someone that likes to drink copious amounts of alcohol, I think to myself, like, I feel, it doesn't feel right to tell someone that is a recovering alcoholic, like, oh, you, your goal is to be sober for the rest of your life. Mm. But um, in my limited experience of this past year, the people that I meet that are recovering from an addiction, um, and because I'm following up with them, if they if they do relapse, if they do have some of something, then it's not like they have some of something. They're they're back to like where they were, and they hate themselves. But to what extent is that due to the disease to the, model to giving the whole, them the expectation? Yeah, you know, because we imbue it with so much magical power. Yeah, that you are powerless against alcohol, right? Mm. As opposed to, yeah, alcohol is the shit. You can drink it or not drink it, and the reason you're drinking so much of it is because you've got these issues that you haven't resolved about, yeah. you know, your self worth or yeah. lack of meaning in your life, or your parents didn't love you enough, or you know, whatever it is. Yeah. As opposed to, no, there's this chemical thing that happens in your brain because of some weird DNA you have and you're just, you know, like this idea that American Indians couldn't metabolize alcohol and that's why they had all these problems with alcohol. Turns out there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Hmm. The reason they had problems with alcohol is that they had just been wiped out. Their entire culture was destroyed. You know, that first it was the smallpox, then it was the wars and the broken treaties and the humiliations. And like, well, that's why they have problems with alcohol, not because there's some weird DNA quirk, you know, in the Native American gene pool. Yeah. But we didn't work that out until the 1980s when finally someone studied and was like, oh, actually, that's not true. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So it gets back to where we started, right, with this idea of the metaphors the narratives yeah. uh, end up not just being a description or an approximation of things, they end up sort of determining reality in a strange way. Yeah. You know, like That's powerful. if we look at the brain as a computer, then we're looking for the hard disk and where's the, you know, where's the RAM and where's the this and that without remembering that, wait a minute, this was all a fucking metaphor. The yeah. brains. And this is a problem I have with a lot of brain research. Like I see a lot of stuff. Like, I don't know if you know Helen Fisher. Do you know her yeah, work? Yeah, I definitely So she's, for people who don't know, she's an, I think she's an anthropologist, but she does a lot of stuff. A lot of her writing is about how, you know, there's, um, you know, this part of the brain lights up when people see a photo of a beloved person. And so love is a neurochemical reaction in the brain. And... I, I feel like this stuff is so reductive and mm. misleading because the minute you put like fMRI on it and you've got some image of the brain with you know here's the green and here's the red area and this means that oh there's more blood flow here and it 
it suddenly uh, attains this sort of scientific credibility. Yeah. When if you look behind the curtain, a lot of times it's like, yeah, whatever. That part of the brain lights up when you look at a picture of anything. You know, that part of the brain looks up when you look at the back of your fucking hand. That's just the part of your brain that means you're looking at something, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. you actually get into the weeds and you find out this is all bullshit. You know, all this stuff like, oh, the brain, this part of the brain lights up when you, that means love. Oh, God, it drives me crazy. Yeah. No, <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm ranting. I No, I like the rant because I, I too am a... I am anti-reductionist. I feel like cognitive neuroscience has done um, a bad job of it because of brain maps. I feel like heat maps on brains just make people feel like that. Like that just looks so cool. They think they understand something. It just looks and so, it's co- so well, much more than that. Well, it looks so. Well, I just think that it looks cool, and that actually is part of the reason why I got into this stuff because I was just like, whoa, I want to understand. Right. Like genuinely, that was part of the reason. Right. Like this stuff was coming out and I was like, whoa, I want to be a part of this. But um, but it's not there. Think about what, can you understand morality from looking at a brain map? Is that the end of the whole debate about like what morality means? Right. Because it comes from the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Right. No, it doesn't. Like, of come course, from, that's not the. Yeah. That's not a causal. Yeah. No, and like if you're part of the if part of the brain lights up because you're looking at someone that is a beloved person, does that what what does that what information does that give you that is useful for you to right. understand and contextualize what that means versus something else? Right. No, I think that cognitive neuroscience has a long way to go um, to better itself in that regard i mean i but actually I, I do think that it's very useful and i think that it's really yeah. cool but um but no i think that but it's also not i mean you're you're being very gracious and saying cognitive neuroscience has a long way to go but i don't blame this cognitive neuroscientists i blame science journalists and writers who take science and you know, and, and it's uh, and look to be fair, it's really hard to be a science journalist because you're expected to speak intelligently about things that other people have spent their entire lives becoming experts at, and you've got four hours to meet your deadline, hmm. and you need to tell a story that people are going to find interesting, so you fit it into your narrative, and suddenly, you know, y- what you don't even understand that becomes. I was just talking to Neil Strauss the other day. He was. Hmm. Um, I forget the scientist, but he was talking with a actually a cognitive neuroscientist at NYU who is often quoted as having said that, I don't know if it was like, like all aggression comes from the amygdala or something like that. Paul Adu? Yeah, I think. Yeah, Paul Adu. That's exactly who it was. And he, uh, Neil had interviewed him and Paul Adu had said, like, I never said that. That's not at all what I said. You know, I I said that the amygdala processes fight or flight response or something like that. You know, then, you know, some journalist tweaked it a little bit and then another journalist tweaked that. And suddenly I'm quoted as having said that all aggression comes through the amygdala. And actually, like, I guess there are two amygdalas or two parts of it. Or I mean, it's just like so... You know, what's the we murder to dissect uh, Wordsworth said, you know, it's like something that's alive and full of subtlety and nuance. We just like, you know, journalists, 
My big, my big pet, peeve, pet peeve is the, um, you know, we've doubled the human lifespan. We haven't. Homo sapiens live <laughs> into their 60s and 70s yeah. in the wild. Undomesticated hunter-gatherers live into their 60s and 70s. This idea that we've doubled the human lifespan is pure bullshit. Uh. But it's so widespread because it makes people feel good because it, it fits into the narrative of progress and you know modern medicine and thank god we're alive today because you know back then you were dead by the time you were 35 nobody was ever old when they were 35 no human being for the last 200,000 years was old at 35. really yeah Really? Right. Okay. And here you are, a postdoc from Stanford, and you believe it. I've taught in medical schools. Medical students believe it. Doctors believe it. My, Everybody my believes grandma, it. My grandma tells me stories about that. My <laughs> grandma was like, I heard that, I remember my dad saying he was 35, and I thought, man, you're old. <laughs> but I guess I had the same thought when my dad said he was 35. Well, that's a different thing when you're yeah. kids. I mean, I used to think 50 was old, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now I think 50 is a soccer mom. <laughs> Way to bring it back. Way to bring, bring it, it back. back around. All right. So anyway, enough with my dancing. Drugs. So, okay. What I want to know is... Which I'll happily entertain, but I can't give you definitive information. Okay. Yeah, we don't want you to get yourself in any trouble. You're an upstanding member of the scientific community. Oh, I'm happy to give my opinions, but it's okay. just not my area of expertise. Well, my feeling is that hallucinogens are unlike any other drugs um, in the sense in many senses but they're non-addictive there you, you don't sort of develop a tolerance to them so you're not taking more and more if you take LSD for three days running the third day right. it has no effect right um, uh, but I, I don't want to get into the legality and all that but what I find very interesting about them one of the things is that they tend to increase uh, creativity and um, sort of thinking about things in new ways. Yeah. And the way that's been explained to me, and, and this is what I want to get your take on, because I don't know if this is a metaphor or if this actually has some basis in, in neural reality. But the way this has been explained to me is that when you see something, uh, let's say you see a cat and then you see another cat and then you see another cat and there's like um it's almost like a trough uh is formed in your brain they're, they're the synaptic pathway from the perception to the recognition um sort of it, it becomes habituated and so every time you see a cat it the same neurons fire there's like a path. You're and talking then, about just like cat recognition. Cat. Like like yeah. like I have learned over my life what a cat looks like. Right. And, and you see something, you're, you're like, oh, that's okay. a cat. Like, boom, cat, cat. Yeah. Right? So yeah. the same neurons are firing. Right? Yeah. And then uh, when you take uh, psilocybin or LSD or whatever and you see a cat, because there, it's almost like the, the neurotransmitter levels are a little higher. It's like there's, it's a flood stage. And so the, the current can cut a new pathway because the level's higher. Mm. And so you see a cat and it feels like it's the first time you've seen a cat. Or you see a flower and you're like, holy shit, look at this flower. Which is why it's so interesting to be in nature when you're tripping on these things. Because you have this 
experience of wonderment because you're looking at things with fresh eyes. Yeah. And the explanation I've had is that's because new neural pathways are novel neural pathways are being um, are firing. And so you're you're seeing. Yes, you're seeing things you've seen before and you actually are seeing them for the first time because you're involving parts of your brain that haven't been involved before when you looked at those things. So I can I, I don't study this at all, um, but I have done hallucinogens and I have thought about this and I can speculate on. Can I give you a speculation? Please, please. So we live our lives with um, there. It's impossible for us to look at something without imbuing meaning on it and imbuing meaning. Meaning is related entirely to what we're doing right now what this means to me, like what this means to you. I mean, you're looking at stuff and you see that entirely related to who you are and to what you're doing right now and to what your needs are and, you know, to what your goals are. Right. And um, hallucinogens, let's say they just turn that part off. Your whole machinery of saying, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm thinking about, this is what I am, let's say that turns that off. Let's say that that part of you is so crucial and so important for perception that we that is completely unappreciated, uh, like that seeing a butterfly, let's say that that part of you that is goal-oriented and is shut down, that's off. All of a sudden your perception and the rest of your, uh, you know, perceptual processes are freed from basically being constrained into this model of like, what does this mean for you? What is happening now? That is labeling, like that's that, that uh, it actually just changes things. That's like why it changes it. That's why it looks so much sharper. That's why it maybe is actually like so much more interesting. It actually just... Um, so it's a, you feel like it's a process of removal, not a, addition. It's removing the, your own... Like the superego. The superego. It's removing that. It's removing, and this is entirely a speculation. Right. But it's just that your your ability to to be a goal oriented machine that's focused on what it needs to do that is shut off. So it's just pure perception without so the just, secondary agenda. Or without the secondary agenda, yeah. but that second the the agenda of what you're doing is so. It, it that so there. This I'm not speculating on. There are tons of studies that have shown in all different sensory domains, but particularly visual visual and auditory, your attention, what you care about, your goal-oriented attention, modulates activity to the level of like the first like sensory receptors. So, so at the retinal level, at the, you know, the hair cell level. Yeah, you what? don't notice you're cold if somebody's holding a gun up to your head. That you're cold, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, what? Oh, no, 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 you know but I mean, mean, no, no, but it's, it's like no. what you what you choose to pay attention to is what you notice, and that's modulated yeah. by your agenda, your yeah. concerns. And yeah, all. and so so that's to say that if you don't have that, then um, maybe that's just what the world looks like to you. Like you're just, I mean, as if you're on hallucinogens. Uh, I see. It goes to a it it's a it's a very core part of our perceptual machinery right 
and um, it plays a really active role. So that's my take on what's happening when you take hallucinogens. Yeah, so what you were just talking about with the, the sort of the two level, there's the level of perception, you know, which yeah. when you're on hallucinogens, that's sort of like where you are. Yeah. And then there's the other level that's monitoring things and has agendas and, you know, what's this mean for me and how does this fit into what I need to do and all that, um, which is, I guess we call higher consciousness or something, although it seems lower, but whatever. Um, where are you? Because that you know, you could say that that is also out of our control in a way, you know, that our ability to goal orient. Right. You know, like to the same extent that we don't choose whether to be focused on, um, you know, reproductive success or, you know, we don't choose to be hungry or not hungry. Yeah. Um, I think this is a very interesting question and, um, some of like the smartest people I know have unsatisfactory answers for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, and I think about this because this is very related to addiction too, because right. addiction is completely questioning what it is to yeah. have free will. Are these decisions or is this a sickness? Yeah. Yeah. And even I mean, if it is a sickness, is it a sickness you choose? Right. Cause you can, I mean, depression. What is depression? Are people, can people think their way out of depression? It's Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a yeah. tough question. And it has, it has real implications for people. Because if you can, yeah. then essentially you're saying that you're, you have a problem with just picking yourself up by your bootstraps and like making it work out better for yourself. Well, I know that's, that's the implication of it. But see, I don't, I don't necessarily follow it to that. Okay. All right. Yeah, so, but anyway, so, go ahead. So here's That's the thing. So, so free will. Um, I have a, a good friend who is a mathematician and he, I'm just going to take his stance for a second because I think it's an interesting one. Uh, he says that he definitely, he believes that there is a God. And the reason that he believes that there is a God is because he devoutly believes in free will. And as far as he knows, everything in this life, in this universe, thus far that we understand, can be, um, can be explained mathematically. And there's probabilistic components to that too. It's not deterministic, but there's probabilistic components. But even with probabilistic components, that doesn't leave a space for there being free will, for doing the rent. Like you, the, the sensation that you have that you can, you could kick your foot out right now. You could punch me in the face. You could throw your, the feeling that you have that you have free will and I have that I have free will feels separate from the, though probabilistic, um, in some sense on a macro level, deterministic world that we live in that, that is completely mechanicalistically, mathematically described. And so in order for us to have free will, that requires there to be something separate from the world of understanding all those things. And so he subscribes to their needing to be a God in order to have free will. But isn't he starting with this, with, how do you pronounce it? A priori, uh, a priori. assumption yeah. of free will. 
but yeah. he's not. Where's where's yeah, yeah, yeah. the proof so, of it? So, like so, we so feel, but I'm not going to punch you in the face. But we feel that that could happen, yeah, but it doesn't. Yeah, he yeah he holds. He starts with that. Absolutely, right. he says he says this is what I feel. I need to justify this. So for yeah. me, I feel as though. Um, oh gosh, it's it's a. Uh, what is it, Pascal's, Pascal's dilemma? Pascal's, uh, Pascal's dilemma. This idea that about believing in God or not, and yeah. we're talking about free will. Oh, that but if that you're wrong, you're better to hedge better, your bets. It's better to like say that you have. It's better to believe in God than mm. it is to not, regardless of what you think, because. Yeah. If there is a, if God, a God, you go to heaven. Right. Yeah. As if God can't tell you're you're bullshitting him. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually think that. Um, it's better to believe that you have free will than it is not, because um, if you believe that you have free will, are you familiar with uh, Carol Dweck's work? Mm -hmm. This is um, related to this, but is not really the same. She breaks this down between the. She has a, an amazing body of work looking at on all different in lots of different domains and age ranges. These two different mindsets. If you believe that people are capable of change then that is versus you think that people are not capable of change. Like you think that like who you are is who you are and you can't, you can't help that. Uh, if you believe that you're capable of change, that's predictive of all sorts of better outcomes, like right. more successful outcomes in terms of like learning and um, just being a better human being. So the free will question, um, I'm going to bypass that hard yeah. question by saying I believe in it because I know that it is better to believe that than it is. It's more useful for me as a human being to believe in that than it is to not believe in it. If I don't believe in free will, then um, the repercussions of that are that I should just, I don't know, not do anything. Yeah, but I mean, if belief is something that's subject to its functional value, then it's no longer belief, right? I mean, if I say I'm going to believe in God because I've read research that shows that people who believe in God have a, you know, better health outcomes, mm -hmm. that's not really believing in God. That's going through the motions of believing in yeah. God. Yeah. It's like, a, yeah, I'm you know, giving you a very shallow answer. No, it's not. But I don't think it is. I mean, it, I think no, it's, that's it's, the way a lot of well, it's bypassing think. the the hard question. It's like saying, oh, I've read that, you know, health outcomes are better if I get married. So if I got to find someone to marry. All right, fine. You're going to make me answer the hard question. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, so I so I, I don't actually believe in free will. I think that we have uh, I think that our world is like I had a wonderful upbringing and I had really loving parents and I think within the realm of the things that happened to me growing up I had a whole like potential you know there's there's a lot of different potential me's and um, I think that I felt like I had the choice within that realm but I think on a grander scale if you if you just take it out a few notches I don't think that free will really I think that free will exists within the level that we're operating on, but on a higher level, if you look at like our planet, it's, I don't think that it's free will. Mm. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like every time I get into these things, I feel like I end up getting tripped up by the metaphors and the, 
the sort of cognitive structures that we use to think of them and that those reduce that we end up reducing the actual thing we're talking about to the words we're using to talk about them. Hmm. So, for example, I, I have a strong sense of something that is talked about in Buddhism, where there's um, there's the you that's living your life, mm-hmm. but there's a deeper you that's watching you live your life. And that deeper observant part of you mm-hmm. is something that lives through persists through lifetimes and that's the part that's reincarnated and that's the part that you know in each cycle of existence learns a little bit more and advances a little bit more and then gets to a point where you know over hundreds of life lifetimes it's like okay i got it now and then that's when you become a bodhisattva or whatever you become an enlightened being and and i kind of have a strong sense of that i always have i i've talked about this before I don't know if it was on the podcast or with a friend recently, but um, I can remember as a kid having a very strong sense of um, where I was before I was born and that it was a comfortable, happy, relaxed place. Mm. And I can remember just like having that memory and, you know, when I'm eight, nine, ten years old, like no problem. But then as I became sort of got into teenage years and and started seeing like my brain was changing and I was thinking more verbally and I was thinking in words more and more. Mm -hmm. And I can remember thinking like feeling that I was losing that memory Hmm. and that as the words, as the sort of intellectual development started taking over my consciousness that that memory was being crowded out Hmm. and I remember thinking that's going to be really important to you later in life and you're not going to remember this and so what you need to do is make this a verbal construct because pretty soon that's all that's going to be left is verbal constructs. Hmm. So you need to take this nonverbal awareness, mm-hmm. make it a verbal memory so that you can carry it through. Because when you get old, it's going to be really important for you to remember that what came the, the sort of context in which this bubble of life takes place is not something to be afraid of. It's something that you've been to. You remember what it was like. When you were fresh into this world, you still remembered what it was like Mm -hmm. and you're going to go back to it and like, don't worry about it, you know, but you're going to worry about it. And so you need to remember this. Wow. It's very, it's a very strong memory. And then when I first took hallucinogens, it was like, oh, I'm back at this pre verbal world again. Like I remember this place. I've been here before. Okay. You know? Yeah. And um, so I have, so as far as free will goes, I'm, I'm not really sure about free will and, and God and all that stuff, but I definitely feel like, like there's this, this level on which we're studying, you know, neurons and brains and psychology and science and technology and all the shit that we're doing, mm-hmm. but it's all happening within a realm of mystery that we... Um, are constantly in danger of forgetting 
like that guy who's looking for his keys under the street light mm -hmm. just because there's no light there because we can't figure it we can't study it we can't look at it we don't know even we don't even have words to talk about it mm -hmm. and so we're in danger of, of of pretending it's not there or forgetting that it's there simply because we don't know how to even discuss it you know way to bring that back i think that's like such a powerful story as a metaphor for what's happening in science now and what has been happening like for a long time. Um, if we had tools to study consciousness, if we had tools to understand that would allow us to understand like or probe questions like free will, we would be doing it, but we just don't. So science sequesters itself to the things that it actually can operationalize and can yeah. you know can can answer like the questions that it can answer because uh, but i mean i think that for me definitely and i think for most people that do science the questions that get you there in the first place are these bigger more important questions that's the irony of it isn't it yeah, yeah and then you're just like oh i guess this is what i oh that's too hard i guess i can study this then yeah um yeah. there are some notable exceptions to that to people that like really like like christoph Koch. Uh, who actually I think was just in uh, India with the Dalai Lama mm. the past over the past week, um, having meetings about consciousness. I would have loved to be sitting in on that. But I mean, there are people that do take that on. It's just um, it's the scientific method doesn't allow that to be a um, you know a, a field of inquiry right now. Yeah. But. Um, and yeah, I, I would, yeah, I don't know what's gonna happen over the course of our lifetimes, but um, I'd be astonished and very happy if we could like probe into these deeper questions over the course of our lives. Yeah. I don't know if it'll get there, but. We'll go to Burning Man. We'll go to Burning Man and we'll, we'll get to experience fun times, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've been talking for over an hour, so I know you have things to do. I'm gonna let you go. Okay. I, I feel like have I is there something a final statement that was a really good place to to end it if you want if you want to if you have something else you want to say I don't have anything else to I say. Know, I was going to ask what you're going to do next and you want to teach mm, and, and blah blah that's blah that's all about like yeah yeah, so yeah. This, this is like deep shit right here yeah probably just end it at the top of the mountain right at the top of the mountain right. you brought it back in a good way <laughs> yeah thanks for doing this oh thank you I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com.
Reddit.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a to the ground.